Sarah said, and especially warm welcome to you if it's your first time here this morning. My name is Taylor Miso. I'm a member here and a deacon as well. And as Sarah alluded to with the Kids for Children's Church, we are continuing in a series this morning that we've been uh, going through uh, for the past few weeks. Uh, various verses in the Bible, the series is called, Do You Really Believe? Do you really believe what these verses are saying? And they're, they're kind of common verses uh, that we're pulling out of the text to talk about and discuss. So today is part eight of that series as we can continue to go through that. Uh, the verse for the discussion is 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It's the last verse in really a chapter of the Bible that would fit into this series. The entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 13 is, is very familiar to, to most of you here this morning. Um, so we're going to be taking a look at that during our time. So some of these verses we've been taking a look at in this series are, are, are so common that perhaps some of the meaning has been lost a little bit. I know for me, if it's a really common verse or passage in Scripture, sometimes as it begins to be read, my mind just goes into recite mode in finishing the rest of the verse, and I'm not really thinking about what I'm saying or what I'm thinking about, right? Because it's so familiar, we're not even processing the, the context anymore. So the goal of this series is to hope and hopefully deepen your understanding uh, and, and shed new light and appreciation on some of these verses that we are, are covering that have become more commonplace. And it's kind of like if you, if you give a deep cleaning to your car, I don't know if anyone's like me, I love detailing vehicles kind of as a hobby, it feels new again, right? All of a sudden it, it, it's, it's like fresh and, and all it takes is, is a little attention and we're doing the same thing here in this series with, with some of these passages is trying to shed new light on them to renew their meaning in your life, uh, life hopefully, and, and for myself as well. So um, this chapter is the love chapter. Again, very common for most of us here. Perhaps you had portions of 1 Corinthians 13 read in your wedding, uh, on your wedding day, uh, or, or perhaps the entire chapter. I remember my wife and I memorizing this chapter together when we were engaged. Uh, we were sitting in an airport terminal some early morning going somewhere. I don't remember where. I just remember being really tired and flipping through the index cards for the chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, trying to, trying to commit it to memory. Um, so very much a part of, I'm sure, uh, the... Uh, the love story and wedding day of, of many of you here this morning. So what this chapter does here, uh, and what Paul does in his letter to the church in Corinth, is he's defining what love is and isn't. That's kind of the most common part of this chapter um, that we're most familiar with. And I want to take a step back before we jump into the text this morning and talk about which kind of love Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 13. So the problem is with, with English we have one word to describe a variety of different ways that we feel about something in the context of love. So I can stand up here and say, I love God, I love my wife, I love my son, I love organizing, and I love cookie dough. Okay? All of those things are very true. My love for cookie dough, though, is a little bit different than my love for my wife. Okay? Um, but we use the same word for all of that, right? Sometimes we really shouldn't use love. We should use words like like or... Uh, really enjoy, perhaps, would be a better way to put it. In Greek, though, there are multiple different words that we would translate to love in the text. <clears throat> so the question is, which, which one is Paul trying to get at here in this passage and in, in, in this chapter? So I'm going to go through a few of the Greek words that we would translate to love. We'll talk about the difference here to kind of establish this. So the first one is eros. Eros is kind of like a romantic love. Um, the Bible references eros indirectly. Eros is never 
um, directly located or mentioned within the text in the scriptures. Uh, it is talked about indirectly, though. This is not what Paul is, is referring to in this passage. It's not Eros. Um, another word is storge. Storge is basically familial or instinctual love. So, so the love that I have for my family as a father, as a husband, that would be storge. The Bible does reference storge in a couple of different passages, the negative version of storge, so it's talking about the lack of love. But once again, this is not what Paul is referring to here when he's talking about the church, or excuse me, referencing the church in Corinth. Next, we have philia. Philia is friendly love or kind of a brotherly love, okay? Sounds like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It's actually not. If you look at the crime rates, don't go there looking for brotherly love. Unfortunately, you're not going to find it on those streets. A good cheesesteak, however, you might find, okay? But that's where it was named from, right? The same root word, philia. Philia, uh, many times, is mentioned in the, in the scriptures. In Romans 12, uh, in verse 10, where it talks about loving other believers, for example, that word there used is, is philia. The word in this chapter, though, that Paul is using, that we are translating to love, and you've probably heard it before, is agape. Okay, agape love is selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love. It's most prevalent in scriptures, so the majority of the time that we see love throughout scriptures, it's talking about agape. And there's a reason for that. It's actually rarely used in classical Greek literature. It's not found often outside of the Bible. If you look at other pieces of literature from, from the same time period where these letters were written by Paul, it's, it's uncommon. And that's because really it's defined by God. It is truly at its definition Christian love, Christ's love. God sent his son and demonstrated agape love to us in that act. And it is his very identity. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. That's talking about agape there. God's very character is this agape love. Okay, so this is, this is the ultimate and highest form of love that Paul is talking about here in his letter to the church in Corinth. So God calls us as believers to pursue true agape love with each other towards God, and he gave us the ultimate demonstration of that by sending Christ to the cross. So what Paul is doing in this chapter, he's addressing multiple facets of agape love and kind of leads up to verse 13, which is the conclusion. So verse 13 is the last verse in this chapter, and we're going to kind of walk through the chapter a little bit and break down a little bit of what Paul says, because really he's kind of building a case for how he concludes in that last verse. So if you look at the various sections of this chapter, really Paul starts off with talking about why agape love is necessary for the believer. That's the first few verses. And then he gets into what it does and doesn't look like. That part is the part of the chapter that most people are most familiar with. And then lastly, he talks about its importance to the believer, uh, especially in comparison to other uh, important things like various spiritual gifts. So why it's needed. Well, the first few verses, he, he tries to establish a case here that without love, the Christian is basically missing the point, okay? Verse 1 says, without love, you're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, okay? So I want you to try to imagine the most annoying sound in the world, okay? That sound for you could be different than what it is for me. Um, maybe it is literally someone clashing two cymbals up here loud, irritating, maybe it's nails on a chalkboard, maybe it's, maybe it's someone whining about something, I don't know, okay? Whatever it is for you, 
Paul's trying to get across here that, that that's like the level of how obnoxious we can come off as if as believers we are not grounded in and building upon a foundation of love in how we interact with each other. It's that important. Without love in verse 2, it says we are nothing. Okay, we can possess multiple spiritual gifts, but if it's not built upon and accompanied by the fruit that comes from being grounded in agape love, those gifts are worthless to the body of believers in our fellowship. And in verse 3, he says we gain nothing. So we are unable to, no matter what we do, have any true gain without being grounded in love. Starting in verse 4, we see kind of a list of things that love is and is not. So he starts off by, by giving a list of what it is and then kind of gets into a list of what it's not and things that should be avoided when it comes to truly loving others. So the is list, okay, we'll go through those. He lists off, and this is partially paraphrased here. Okay, love is patient, it's kind, there we go, affirming a truth, it's protecting, trusting, hopeful, and steadfast, right? What it is not, on the other hand, and this, this list specifically, keep in mind he was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, so Paul was able to identify some specific issues within the church there that he wanted to directly call out, okay? So that's, that's part of the background here on what he's defining as, as not being loving, because obviously this is not a fully encompassing list of what love is not. It is not envious, it's not boastful, it's not proud, rude, selfish, easily angered, unforgiving or malicious so he was trying to target some areas with the church that he felt like would benefit them to grow in in their relationship with each other in the body of Christ by listing some of these things off and multiple times in this letter actually previously he kind of addresses their arrogance okay so we know that is from the scriptures kind of one area that um, the, the church here is struggling with and I look at this list and I'm you know all of us probably identify with some things more than others. Maybe on the, the is list, you see some things that you'd really like to grow in and, and how you're able to love and interact with others within the body of believers. And, and on the is not list, maybe you go, yep, that's me. I know I struggle with that. I, I know for me personally, I've seen the is nots multiple times throughout my life, uh, periodically. And, and on the is list, patience, that first one, right? That, that's hard sometimes. The, the practicality of being patient uh, as a father, but then also I've come to realize that if, it, if I'm really being intentional to, to build into someone and to show them true agape love, it takes time and effort. And what I found in my life is that sometimes I'm not willing to put in that time that God may be calling me to put in. So that was the one that stood out to me right off the bat. Paul's using these to challenge the church at this time. Then he moves on and talks about how important, again, to start closing out this section of his letter, how important it is and what the priority of love should be. Okay, should be number one. So it should be the priority pursuit of every believer. In verse 8, it says, love never fails, and certain translations say love never ends. Okay, it continues on forever into eternity. Then he starts talking about spiritual gifts. So he talks about, for example, specifically prophecy and tongues, knowledge, and he mentions that these will pass away. So why, why is he saying this? Why is Paul defining this? Well, when we reach eternity and we're with Jesus as believers, 
these gifts are not going to be necessary, right? We're not going to need the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy. When we're with Christ, we have God there for that knowledge. Our understanding of his love is not going to be complete until we reach eternity. And then Paul kind of makes a comparison here to a child. So he talks about children being immature, but as they grow, they lose some of their childish ways and mature. And in the same way, the goal for you and I as believers in the church should be to mature in our love as we go through life, right? It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. And then as he begins to wrap up, he talks about and likens this process to looking at a reflection in a mirror. From what I gather in a little reading I've done, little tidbits, you know, mirrors back in Paul's day were not as good as they are today. Makes sense. Today, mirrors are pretty good, right? It's not the real thing. We know that. But if I look at my reflection in a mirror, it's pretty good, okay? Uh, back, back, back in this time, it was more distorted. Um, the, the quality was not there. And the mirror's ability to give an accurate depiction, it was just kind of part of the picture in a way, right? So this is kind of what he's getting at. We're, we're kind of like seeing a glimpse of what we can achieve in love until we reach eternity. Because ultimately then, of course, we'll be able to experience and, and show perfect love being with Christ and having that full knowledge only when we're face-to-face -face with him in heaven. So that's now how Paul is transitioning this. Is it's, it's a lifelong process, and when we reach eternity, then it becomes complete. Okay, And then he reaches the last verse, verse 13, which is our verse of discussion for this morning. And he says, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So he boils it all down. Faith, hope, and love is a common theme for Paul. That theme can be found throughout all of his letters. If you're reading Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, you can see that theme throughout his letters to various churches. Okay, So this is not entirely a new idea. Um, but the question is, what does he mean when he says these three remain? Okay. Um, different scholars have different opinions on that. One belief is he's just summarizing and saying, well, I've talked about all this other stuff earlier in this passage, and, and now let's talk about faith, hope, and love. Um, most, however, think uh, and feel that what he's referring to is these three remain and will not fade away, meaning these three will remain into eternity in our time with Christ. Okay? Um, the gifts will no longer be needed in the end, right? And this is kind of what we're left with, is, is the approach here. Um, so how, does, how do these three remain? Faith, hope, and love. So faith, how does that remain? Well, we, we're going to have a continued belief in the holiness of God, right? Our, our faith is not going to disappear even when we're with him. Hope is kind of a tough one, because a lot of times we talk about hoping for eternity. So the question is, how can, how can hope remain if we've reached eternity, we're with God in heaven, now what do we have to hope for? And I read one interpretation, you know, interestingly, if you look at the Greek word that is used here in this passage that we are translating to hope, it is elpis, and elpis means to have a confident expectation of good. So you could say that perhaps Paul's intent here uh, would be to use, instead of the word hope, maybe, maybe a word similar to trust where trust is going to, to move on, and, and we're trusting um, in the fact that God is continually good, right? We're still going to trust in his goodness as we are with him in eternity. And lastly, love. Love's the easy one. Love bridges the gap between 
our present time and eternity and will continue, right? As believers, we will continually experience God's love in eternity. We will be able to love God and love others as well. Where agape truly is displayed in perfection when we are with our Lord. So, why then, it says in the very last sentence, the greatest of these is love. A lot of good stuff. Faith, hope, really good, right? Why is love the greatest? Well, Paul is, I think, really trying to use this passage to establish this point in his conclusion. Love is the greatest because it is the very nature of God. We're talking about agape love. It's the very nature of God given to us to be mirrored, right? We're not going to do a perfect job of it while we're on this earth. We're imperfect people trying to love others and love God as he's demonstrated to us. We're trying to mirror that back to him and to others, which will become a perfect process later on. So he gave us this love on the cross. He demonstrated what perfect agape love looks like to us, and it is the greatest because he gave it to us, to you and I as believers in Jesus. Today we're going to close with communion uh, as a time to remember what Christ did on the cross. So I'm going to pray to close us, and then we're going to take communion together to remember that perfect love that he showed us by sending his son. So after I pray, uh, you can dismiss yourselves by row. You can funnel down one of the two aisles uh, and come up and, and take communion. Father, thank you for this morning and this time to all be together for Family Worship Sunday. I thank you for the gift of your son. I thank you for demonstrating what perfect love looks like, Lord, that we can in our lives seek to be more like you in how we interact with others within the body and how we demonstrate our love to you. And I, I ask, Lord, that this morning you would help each of us here today to grow in love, Lord. Um, we all have ways that we uh, can love others more like you would, God. And I ask for the strength to do that, the desire to do that, and that you would change our hearts and minds and make them more like you. In your name, amen.